Hello, it's Denise from Women Beyond a Certain Age. I'm giddy about our guest today because she is not only a friend, but a woman I admire and respect so much. My very dear Sandra Guterres. Hello. Hi, Denise. It's so ha I'm so happy to be here with you. You are a darling. I need to tell our viewers, I would think a lot of the women that listen to us, though, Sandra, we seem to be picking up in the 40 to 50 group, which I think is just amazing. Do you know what I mean? But I, I think it's because they realize of the guidance <laughs> that I'm trying to offer. All the things don't be like me would be my bumper sticker. <laughs> my guests, in fact, are all brilliant. So, honey, this is what I need people to know about you. I met you at Greenbrier. I don't remember if you remember that. Yes, I do. Okay. Greenbrier, first time I ever saw you, Greenbrier was a writer's retreat by Tony Allegra, and it was really put, you know, and it was a brilliant idea. Tony wanted to connect agents and new writers and cooking, uh, cooking, not, well, not really food so much, but writing techniques, and she brought in incredible guests. Well, I signed up, I had never gone. And only, and I'm so glad I did. And I never went, probably just because it was a long way to go and two planes and the money. And I'd already written like six books. Do you know what I mean? So I wasn't sure if I really needed to go. And then Ann Willen, of course, said to me, oh, you must go, Dad. You must go. Well, of course, I do whatever Ann Willen says. If Ann Willen said, jump in front of the train, I'd say, which one do you want me to get in front of? You got the kid? Whatever she says, I do. Well, then at the last minute, all booked, I get there, Anne can't come. So, so there I am in Greenbrier, and thank God I met you. Nancy McDermott was there. I, did, I knew a lot of people there. And of course, as it turned out, seeing Greenbrier itself, I mean, seeing the Dorothy Draper's wallpaper and drinking Tony Allegra's great wine and meeting so many new people, it turned out to be just a wonderful experience for me. But I need to hear your story. Did you go to it now? If people don't know, Sandra, and she can repeat this, but Sandra was a food editor for years in her, in Cary. And I know that you've been a writer for a long time, but did you go to Greenbrier that day, that weekend or that week to get a cookbook deal? I did. I actually, I don't remember in, on which of my visits I met you, but I, I remember meeting, meeting you. And um, I, I went there because I, I wanted to meet an agent. And actually it was Nancy McDermott who connected me to Lisa Eckes, my agent. Yes. So uh, Lisa said, I'm going to be at the Greenbrier. And of course, you're going to be there too, right? And I said, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> and I made my plans to go and I met her. And I, I did indeed get my first book deal from that experience. But I learned and I got so much more from the Greenbrier than I could have ever imagined. Uh, first of all, the, the, well, the venue was an experience yes. in and of itself. Uh, but the people and the way that Tony Allegra built this network of people too. I remember she said, once you're in here, there are no titles and no one is better than anybody else. You're just all here to be mentored and to be mentorees. And you're on an equal basis. So here, there, you sit with wh whoever you want. You sit wherever you want and you discuss whatever you want. 
And that was so different from what I had experienced in the first two decades of my food writing career because everything had been so, so secretive. Um, and I didn't have anybody to show me the ropes, you know? So I had, I made a lot of mistakes along the, the way, but it was my own university of life, you know, sort of guiding me. And here I was in a place where people were willing to share all this information and, and we could ask questions. And it, it, was, it, it opened up an incredible network of friends because the groups were so small that you really did become friends with the people you met there, like you and I did. You couldn't have said it better. You know, Sandra, one of the things with new writers today, people that want to write a cookbook and everyone always answers them and says, you have to get an agent. Well, that's a throwaway line, but in reality, and I say to people, like you had the experience in referrals with Nancy McDermott, which of course we all need help from our friends, all yeah. of us. And that's what the network's all about. But you know what I say to them, you have to find that an agent. If you need to go fly somewhere where they speak, if you need to, you know, send them flowers and then say, can you give me 10 minutes on Zoom and put yourself face to face? I said, even though it's a business, so much of food is personal relationships. Okay. That's what we do. Yes, I would agree. It's not what you know as much as who you know at first. That's right. Honey, I, years ago, this is long before I met you and stuff. I was fairly, 93. I mean, I'd been in food for almost a decade, but I hadn't written a book yet. I, you know, I was, I wanted to, but I was struggling with the whole thing. But to make the long story short, I went to IACP that year, which is a great organization. We talk about it all the time. People know, they can look it up. But I went and it was a panel on recipe development and almost everyone on the panel was on, worked for a magazine. Uh -huh. And when people said, well, how much do you charge per recipe? They couldn't answer. Yeah, I remember those. They, they wouldn't tell their salary. They wouldn't say what they, how long it took them to, to do a recipe. And in the middle of it, of course, this is classic of me, which is why either people either like me or they don't, Sandra, let's be honest. I stood up and I said, I want to thank all of you for your time, but if you won't tell people some of the fine details, what good is it to us? If we don't work for Bon Appetit, if we aren't getting a job at Food & Wine, if we're just an independent contractor out there, how do we know how many hours it should take us to do a recipe or charge? Exactly. And you know Sandra, it was so... Uh, you just said it. And anyway, I think that networking, even though in the age of so much, everything done over uh, the internet, building, building a network is everything in this career. It is. And our career in food, food is such a catalyst. Uh, people who are foodies, who are food writers, who are historians, whatever you want, we love to talk about food. <laughs> it's a happy career, I'd like to say. So if, if you don't like to eat, if you don't like to have something to do with food, you don't belong in the group because it's, it's a very gregarious group of people. We're just happy-go-lucky, most of us are. And in conferences like IACP, you know, it's as much as what we're gonna learn as to what we're going to do after the conferences and who we're gonna go have dinner with and have lunch with or a, a secret party with, all these, extra opportunities to network and grow these relationships. It is a career based on relationships. Absolutely. 
Honey, now, so from Greenbrier, you need to tell us because it's, it's your book, The New Southern Latino Table, won awards, ended up in a display case in the Smithsonian. I mean, now, Sandra, it, when I saw that, and I was so proud of you, if you never did an, another thing in life, you could have lived off that laurel. <laughs> you know what? I mean, that's a big, big, wonderful thing. So can you tell us, just tell us how the new Southern Latino table happened? And if people that are listening to us, if you've never seen Sandra's book for some reason, it's a classic. It does not go out of style. You can go and buy it today and enjoy it. Just like, because how many years has it been out now, Sandra? Since 2011. So see, that's, yeah. that's what makes a classic. This yeah. is, it makes a classic. That's when the book, when I pick mine up, I have mine. Um, when I look at it, I think this book is as fresh today as when you wrote it. it if actually, Sandra, to be perfectly honest, you wrote it before people were even thinking about this. Do you know what I mean? I don't think people, you were ahead of the curve, which is why the book seems so fresh to me now, because now everybody's talking about foodways and, you know, the immigrants that came to our country. But you were talking about this in 2011. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's a special book for me because it came about um, very organically and very naturally. I started, um, you know, doing the columns for the Carrie News, the food columns. And uh, it was a, a one of those one man bands, one woman bands. I did five columns on five different subjects every week. And as I had a lot of readers who would write to me. Again, it's it's who you know, right? It's that network. And my readers started telling me about, we're talking about the 1990s here. And they started telling me, oh, you know, I found this interesting chipotle peppers and I'm putting them in my barbecue sauce. And then people started giving me all these ideas of things that they were doing in the kitchen. And then us, like all, all of us Latinos who we had a little network too, we're doing the same thing in reverse. We were start, starting to combine our type of recipes with Southern ingredients because we couldn't find our ingredients here necessarily, not from all 21 countries anyway. Uh, and that is how I came to discover that there was something happening and that there was a new movement in the movement of Southern food, which of course includes Creole and Cajun and all those um, low country, all those movements that are so important. But I thought here is another movement that's starting. And so I followed it for about, um, I'm going to say six years, seven years, and before I started writing about it, until it became completely impossible to ignore. And it was impossible to ignore. I was finding it all over the place. But what made it different from, let's say, the California culinary movement or the Tex-Mex movement is that in the South of the United States, it was all 21 Latin countries coming together with Southern food because of our similarities of ingredients the cultures that formed our cuisines at the base, which were the Europeans, the Native Americans, and of course the, um, the immigrants. And then we had all these, the same basket of ingredients that we were using, chocolate and pork. And this, so once, it all, once we found ourselves in the same territory, we just started amalgamating and fusing, if you will, marrying, if you will, but not in a chefy way. It yes. wasn't a chef-driven movement. It was a people's movement. And when the University of North Carolina uh, Press got my, um, my proposal for the book, they said, we want the whole book on this because at that point, chefs were 
starting to feature these recipes in their, in their restaurants. And so even to them, it was obvious that this was already a movement. So that's how the book came about. And the reason that I think it's still relevant today is that now the movement is super, super obvious. Yes. Well, honey, you know, I love what you talk about. You talk about the European influence in Spanish, in, in South America, indigenous people, or, or Central and South America. And the Africans. And the Africans. I mean, so, and this is what, to me, Sandra, which has always been interesting about food. And when I've traveled, I could go to Africa and be in Africa and you could see Indian food coming down from a ship. Do you know what I mean? And how it landed in Africa. Or then when I researched it, the uh, Indians went into Africa to help build the railroads. So we know that immigration paths, it, it, the immigrants to come anywhere, change our food. When I ran my big catering kitchen, it was in the 80s and sent mid 80s and the late 80s. Well, Sandra, there was so much horror going in Central, Central America yes. that the boys that came through Mexico to LA to get jobs. I had men in my kitchen that were from Guatemala, Honduras, Venezuela. And of course, the thing that was difficult, but then you would, I used to say, you got to play to play to people's strengths. I would see some of the boys in my kitchen and they were, they were prep cooks. That's what the job they could get. But honey, they'd been doctors, tailors, lawyers in their own country. So, I mean, that tailor became our pastry chef because that guy treated a pan of brownies the same way he was cutting a suit. Do you Absolutely. see? Absolutely. And, and, and that is that that is the Latin American immigrant story. That there you you've got it. It's exactly what it is like. And uh, so you know, it's it's funny. I, I say for us Latinos right now, it's a very interesting point in history in the United States because on the one hand, one side calls us rapists and criminals. And on the other side, they call us breakfast tacos. So we're like stuck in the middle. We're like, hey, you're still trying to, to build upon up stereotypes. Uh, you need to get to know us instead of just putting us in a box. Sandra, it's an embarrassment at this day and age in our culture because all America is, is immigrants. Do Absolutely. you know It's an embarrassment. I... See, I grew up in San Francisco where it was Italians and Chinese. Yeah. That's who made up. We, we got each other. We lived every other block. Do you know what I mean? But we, we were the subject of the same racism. That's all I can say. People called us garlic eaters or wops or whatever. You know, it was all, it was derogatory. But then when I moved to LA, I realized in about a month, I thought if the Mexican immigrants that didn't come to LA aren't this entire city would collapse okay and now at last second and third generation whether they're from central america latin america hispanics they're the governors do you know what i mean they're the mayors of the cities and so i don't understand how people can still hang on to negative stereotypes I like to think that that it's not everybody, that it's not the general public. I, agree. I like to think that the media is still stuck on it because it's sensational and the politicians are still stuck with it because they don't know what to do with us. They don't know how to attract our votes. So <laughs> yes. That's a reality. They don't know. So they haven't realized yet that we're not two party system I people. I agree. And so we're going to be going 
the Latinos are going to keep on voting in a pendulum once, depending on who gives us what we need. Um, because that's the way generations of Latin Americans have lived in countries that have 13, 14, 15 political parties that have to form alliances that's to right. become a government, like very much like in Europe. Yes. So uh, that's what I think. But I think the, 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 the normal day-to-day -day person that you meet has a kind heart here in the United States, has an open heart and open mentality and, um, and likes differences. And, and that's where cooking and food comes in for me. It's been such a wonderful uh, door opener is that most people love to try different foods. And at least the newer generations, you know, the, the kids that as we call them, you and I, uh, they have a very educated palate and they don't see um, color or race or gender anymore. They just see food, you know, they just see this incredible opportunity to enjoy something deliciously. And so that's what excites me so much about this career is that we are able to break stereotypes, but also to build bridges between people and cultures uh, and doing it through history and doing it through culture, but uh, doing it also through the heart that we can't lose the heart of things, the emotional part. You know, there's several fabulous quotes, Sandra, that you have made. I love this one. I have to read the whole thing. Oh. The world has been run by men long enough. <laughs> Women care for the next generation in a way men don't. We can see the problem, feel the anger and the pain, but we don't get locked in that fight over who's right or wrong. Now, honey, that could save the world. That quote could save the world. And you know when I loved reading it, the reason, Sandra, is a generation above us, I spent a lot of time with Joyce Goldstein. Yeah. And Joyce wrote about, she called it the, uh, the Jewish trilogies, but it was all about Jews in Europe. Joyce used to say her, her plan was that if, Jews and Arabs and Egyptians, if all the women just cooked together in the marketplace, that we could stop the war. Yes. Stop the wars, these hundred-year-old wars. And I agree with her. And it's like, you don't send your sons off to be killed after you've eaten, you know, had coffee and a donut with a woman that you really liked in the marketplace. And so that's when your, your quotes just struck me because... I don't know why, and this is a big question and I don't have the answer, but why, except for the power, power grabs, why anybody, especially other women, would be afraid of women being in charge because the state of the world is a mess right now and we let men do that. Yeah. I mean, not all men, but a lot of men, and I watched the old white men in charge of the the pol political scene in Washington. And I think to myself, you know, I could have been, I could do a better job with that budget than those bozos have done. Oh, could we ever, right? <laughs> Even if we only ate rice and beans, but we would make it go and last. That's right. We know what seasonings to put in them to make them, you know, have a lot of pizzazz. When you, when the Southern Latino table came out, were you surprised by the reception or just thrilled? I was very surprised. Uh, I didn't think it was, you know, I, I knew it was new, and but I didn't think that people were ready to, to see, you know, that connection yet. Um, and it's grown. My surprise continues to grow as the interest in the book continues to grow as well. Yes. So I'm just grateful. I'm so grateful 
and what an opportunity, you know, to have that be my first book. Absolutely. Now, how many books have you re- written since then, Sandra? Well, I've, we've published four books, okay. but I've written five because my fifth one is coming out next year. Wonderful. And so that's, that's going to be a big book. Good. If you had advice for someone, because you said you made mistakes along the way. Well, all I know is, Sandra, I've made more mistakes. I make some mistakes twice. I say that every time and it's embarrassing. I'm sorry if you've asked Linda. But I've made some huge mistakes in my life. But you know what? I just got up and thought to myself, hmm, take another road. Is there a mistake? That, are there a couple of mistakes in your career that you would go back now and say, oh, I, I know more? Or are you the type that are just able to say, never mind, I'm going to get up and move on? A little bit of both, but I'll say uh, we have a saying in Spanish that it's better to uh, say you're sorry than to ask for permission. So make those mistakes. I think my first advice is a mistake is an error in direction you can redirect. Yes. But not making it doesn't even give you any direction. That's right. So, so make it. I'll say the one thing I would do all over again, if I could, or the advice that I give uh, new writers is don't be afraid to, to, to write. I think we're told, oh, we're not good enough. It's that imposter syndrome that we all have. Um, go for it. And, and that would be the first thing that I would say, absolutely, don't be afraid to actually go ahead and do it. Don't let fear stop you. Um, fear stopped me from looking for an agent for a long time. I just never thought that I was good enough of a writer to write a book. And um, it just never occurred to me until people started telling me, where's your book? And asking me, and it was like, well, I don't know. I don't even know how to do it. So, um, so ask, <laughs> you know, I would say that's the first mistake. But um, also I say the other mistake that uh, people make is, stopping too soon, giving up. Don't ever give up. I've never given up. I always say, not now, not here, not yet. But I don't hear the no. I just, that doesn't exist in my book. It it exists as a boundary. If somebody says, no, don't do this, of course. But in terms of you can't do that, no, I do not accept that. It's a not here, not yet, not now situation because the success could be right around the corner. And if you stop right in front of that corner, it was only a turn away before you would have gotten it done. Well, you know what? I was working for, oh, I worked for PBS, the Discovery Channel, Lifetime in 93 to 94. I mean, I, I moved from production to production. In 1994, I read High on the Hog. Yes. And I wrote Jessica Harris a note and said, this is a TV show. I you know what I mean. Well, look how I'm, far ahead of your time. Yeah. Well, I knew it was because, and this is an interesting thing, Sandra. Again, it's, it's the food ways, it's pathways. I had been the culinary producer on the very first show called Yvonne's Cookbook by Discovery Channel. She was a Black hostess. She was an event planner in LA. She was beautiful and smart and she had a successful business. And we did 63 shows, okay, for the Discovery Channel. And I loved her and she was talented and blah, blah, blah. It was too soon. People were not ready. And then of course, about four years later, up, I mean, the show sold and she got some good things from it. 
but they didn't renew it. And I know it's because they didn't feel that it a society, black people weren't watching it. Nobody was watching it enough. Four years later, B. Smith. Yeah. Okay. Who we worked with, Cindy and I worked with, who was one of, of course, the thing with B. Smith is she was the most charming person God ever put on the planet. She really was. Who could say no to B. Smith? Nobody. Okay. And she was just incredible. But I'm just saying, so when Jessica Harris, so I think of that, I'm watching what it's 20, it's, it's 2020 and Netflix says our new show high on the hog. And I thought to myself, 27 years after she wrote that book, are you kidding me? But I think I agree with you. I think one, we all, I've done it. You give up because you're just tired and you don't think that there's going, it's never going to happen because we want things to happen quickly. And the, the universe moves at its own pace. You know, exactly. it move at our pace. Now, I want the audience to know we are going to do a second podcast with um, Sandra and talk more about your books. And because it's very exciting, because one of them is being re-released, so we'll talk about that. But Sandra, I need people to know, with especially now when we've just talked about your drive, your determination. I, when I went to Facebook one morning and there, and Sandra's a great gardener, which we'll also talk about probably. Sandra has a garden that rivals. I mean, it's amazing. She said, I, I remember when you said, oh, I'm going to plant a garden. And then people, she started posting these pictures. It's like a produce stand. I mean, it's extraordinary. I am not a gardener for that, a food gardener. I'm very good with succulents and roses and some gardenias. But yes, Sandra, your flowers are gorgeous. Oh, I, I can grow flowers, okay? But Kenny and I one year decided to put in a couple of tomato plants and I think it cost us, I'm repeating myself, I've said this before, I think we spent about $800 and got two tomatoes. And I said, <laughs> I, 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 I don't think we're, we're good at this. So your garden is extraordinary. But it, again, it shows planning and determination. That's what I think gardens are, okay? And I think it shows, I think it's a tremendous amount of hope and determination in gardens. Um, now, so I open up Facebook one day and there you are in the hospital and you have had a serious injury. And I know everyone that knew you just gasped and we either said our prayers or uh, prayed to Allah or we did, or we just, we did something, Sandra. So, I, but what was amazing to me again was your determination to get well. So can, I know this is a very personal thing, but if you don't mind sharing it with us, there is a lesson in this for everyone. Sure, it was a fluke really. I woke up with um, a lot of neck pain. I've been ha- I, I had been having it for, for several weeks. And one of my doctors, when he saw me and I could barely move as I was talking to him, he said, let's check that neck, something's wrong. And they did, and they discovered that I had a broken neck. So I had been gardening, writing a book, photographing book, the whole thing with a broken neck. And they literally wheeled me into the hospital and said, say goodbye to your husband, because we don't know what's going to happen. So I had to say goodbye to my husband and my kids. Of course, it's COVID time. So no one could come to the hospital, into the hospital. And they did this long surgery. And uh, long story short, when I woke up, I was paralyzed from the neck down and I couldn't feel anything. And they told me, we just don't know. 
we, we don't know if you're going to be they able didn't to know if your feeling was going to come back ever or if I was ever going to be able to swallow or walk or move anything. And I, I remember waking, of course, I was full of steroids, Denise, you know, they fill you up with steroids. And I, I blame those, those, or I bless those steroids for part of this stamina that I had, because I looked at them and I said, if you didn't make me better, it's you, it's on you because you're not God. I said, and God wants me to walk again. I'm about to have a grandbaby in two, in two weeks. And I'm going to teach her how to walk. I don't care how long it takes, but I'm going to walk and I'm going to get out of here and we're going to do it. And we, we, we're going to start right now. And from then on, I can tell you, it's been a lot of work, um, but I broke um, several of my top, um, what do you call them? The the discs, but not the discs, but the actual neck. The, okay. I'm, I'm blanking on it, but you know, the actual bones, I broke a couple of them, that's C6, C7, C5, that area there on top of your neck. So that injury was so high up that I could have been a quadriplegic. So um, they did not know what to expect, but I never took no. I just didn't hear that. Again, I didn't hear that. Do you have any idea how, you, how it happened? Sandra? No one knows. Okay. Because they, I didn't have an accident. I didn't fall. I, I think, you know, I broke my neck writing the last book. I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's a very big book, but uh, um, it's size-wise, you know. Um, no one knows what happened. And that's part of the enigma is doctors saying, we don't know how it happened. We don't know how you did everything you did for all these weeks. We don't know how you were alive when you got to the hospital and we don't know how you survived. And now we don't know how you're walking. So I do believe in miracles. I, I do too. I believe in a God that's so merciful that he allowed me to stay. What the reason is, I'm still searching. There must be something that I need to do for others because this is not about me. This is about, I've got to do something for others. I just haven't discovered what it is yet. Well, I think you've done a lot for others already. A lot, Sandra. Now I'll tell you this: to be to say, say because of COVID, especially with that, what a horrible time for you to have to go into the hospital. See, that's what I remember. It was the shock because here we are in this pandemic, and then your husband. How many years have you and Luis been married? Thirty-seven. Thirty-seven. My lucky number. You know that. It's my lucky. Oh no. Yeah, Thirty-seven is my lucky number. Two beautiful daughters that are one is a dentist, and what is the other young woman? A lawyer. Yeah, yeah. So those slackers, those yeah. girls, those slackers. And one of them planning the granddaughter. I mean, of course you had to get well, Sandra, but I agree. I think there's higher powers in our life. I think that, um, and I, I think though, this is the point I want to make, and I certainly am not a doctor. Attitude though, is everything in life. I think. Do you know what I mean? And I know it in myself. I'm speaking from myself. If I awaken in a day in a crappy mood, for whatever reason, I only give myself about a half an hour. I say, okay, feel sorry for yourself for half an hour or poor you or that awful scale. You haven't lost any more weight. Or if this is, I tease my husband. I always say to him, you know, I was thinner, prettier, smarter, and richer before I married you. <laughs> and he always says, yeah, right. But I know that attitude is everything. So the fact that you um, 
while you're still in bed, pumped up with drugs and uh, paralyzed, you're already thinking, I'm going to walk again. And I, I have to walk again because I have a new grandbaby who I've seen pictures of, who is like the most beautiful grandchild oh, in the world. I mean, your girls are also magnificent. We know that. Oh, come on. So much. But I did. I, went, I woke up saying, no, I, I am not done yet. Yes. Um, still a lot for me to do. I'm alive. I'm breathing. And um, not to say that there are people whose injuries are worse than mine who might not be able to walk again. But... Um, it's how you accept what's happening to you. Uh, because I also had that hard conversation with myself saying, well, if I really can't walk, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. So the first thing I did was ask Louise, remember, no one could come see me, was right. order me a box of, um, <clears throat> sorry, a box of coloring pencils and a coloring book, because I'm going to teach myself how to move my hands again. So, so I... I started to teach myself how to hold a pencil. Um, they had to feed me. I couldn't move my hand to feed myself. But even just holding the pencil, I had no feeling in my hands. So the movements came before the feelings came. Got it. Um, it, is, it is frightening. Frightening. So, so being afraid is, is nothing. There's nothing wrong with it. It's a feeling. It's like being scared. You can't stop being scared. It's a feeling. But letting the fear stop you, I go back to that advice and letting that fear paralyze you, no pun intended, is unacceptable to me. Yes. You know, and, and like I told you before, we have a saying in Spanish that goes, you can't kill an old weed, a bad <laughs> weed. You can't kill me, you know, not right now. Sandra, it's an inspirational story. And as everyone, all your friends and people that follow you on Facebook saw you getting well, I saw you in the hospital on the, those, peril, those bars that they have to practice walking. And you said, you said something like they've made it a slightly uneven so I can work in my garden again. You were, again, seeing, you know, there's so much. And I know this again. I know some people think I've been accused of being a Pollyanna. I've been accused of always seeing the positive side of life. Some of it is true. That is, but I was raised that way, Sandra. That was my mother. My mother used to say, shut up, get out of bed and find, you know, and if you can't be grateful for what you got, be grateful for something. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's just how I was raised. And, and it has served me well, though I've had my share of trauma and horror. But you know what? Cindy would always say to me later on, we'd go into a studio and she'd say, you don't remember the last time we worked here that it was the most brutal day, that it was horrible. Everything I said, no, I forgot. <laughs> yeah, and that's a blessing. I, I am one of those. I, I don't hang on. I try not to hang on to the negative. I am Italian, so sometimes I'm petty, Sandra. And there were we all are. I don't think that has anything to do with being Italian. I think we all are. It's nothing to be proud of. There was one or two people in my life that rejection letters when I couldn't get anything published, that when I met them later, I probably said, Oh, yes, I've met you again. By the way, I've had nine books published. It was probably the first, <laughs> first words out of my mouth because I because I'm petty, as I said. <laughs> You're an inspiration. You're an inspiration to everyone that knows you. And I'm sure anyone that listens to this, it's not easy, you know? And that's the thing I try to say to people, when they look at people that have published books or have had success in their life, 
it's not, that's not the road. Do you know what I mean? The road may have had, I mean, I was recently in Italy and you know how Italy still has all those cobblestone streets. Yes. Oh yes. Oh my God, they're so beautiful until you get old and you can't walk. <laughs> And I was with a young, a young person who I'd grab his arm. I'd grab David's arm and I'd say, you have no idea. When I was 30, I'd had too much vodka and had on four inch spike heels and walked on these cobblestones. You could dance on that cobblestone. I could dance. I was fine. I said, mm, 71, it's a little different. I'm wearing sensible shoes and I'm still having a problem. <laughs> but I was determined. And so I got through it. And besides, a ha handsome young man that I could grab his arm every time I wanted to. Hey, that always helps. It helped. But Sandra, you were at ICP, and I know you remember I was teasing you. Every I didn't go that year. I think I was on, I don't know if I was uh, on, on a cruise. I don't know where I was, but I didn't go. Every time I turned around, there was a new picture of Sandra with another handsome young man on Facebook. And <laughs> one of them was Curtis Stone, who I have worked with and who is like one of the handsomest guys in the world, let's be honest. <laughs> And when he reaches in to kiss you, you think to yourself, oh, my God, you want to turn your cheek and get him on the mouth because he's so <laughs> That's in totally poor taste. And I'm sure Cindy will edit that out. Ha, ha, ha. Anyway, there was one picture after another of you, Sandra, at that conference with one handsome chef. And then when you were going home on the train, you took a picture of your darling husband through the window and he was standing at the train station with a bouquet of flowers. Yes. And you said, he's so sweet. And I said, are you kidding me? He's been looking at you on Facebook. <laughs> With all those gorgeous guys, he's just thrilled you're, st you're on the train. <laughs> and you laughed, but I mean it. I, I think we all, none of us see ourselves the way our friends see us or admirers see us or lots of times other people. So I, I don't think you always see how much you've already accomplished. Thank you. Know. And I must say, I'm very blessed with the husband. Yeah. You got that right. We're high school sweethearts and we've grown up together and I feel for him the same that he feels for me. So that's another blessing. Holy mackerel. That's lovely. The last time I saw my high school sweetheart, we had a reunion about 10 years later and he still tried to push me out of the car. Oh, well, <laughs> we're all different. Now, madam, if people want to contact you, as always, Cindy puts all Sandra's information on our Facebook page. And if you want to contact me or Cindy, it's womenbeyond at iCloud.com. And we are thrilled when we get notes. And look, I'm crossing my fingers. They've all been really pleasant and upbeat. So that's nice. <laughs> so Sandra, thank you so much for your time. And I know that people can go to Amazon and buy your books. And I hope they do. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I will tell you that your podcast is a constant companion for me when I'm out gardening. You have told me that. I'm thrilled. Yes, I take my little uh, speaker out with me and I blast it and I'm laughing and learning and, and the time just goes by. So you're my friends out there with me every week. That is so sweet. Honey, I feel like back to exactly where we started. The network, we have new people coming on. People, we, Cindy and I have kind of had a flurry of PR agents that all of a sudden want to put their, their woman expert on the show. And we look at them, Cindy and I look at them. We had one that was the only time we had one who was as crazy as a woman and we didn't get it until we'd already was recording and like, oh, Cindy and her, like this to each other, <laughs> going around 
it, putting our fingers to the head in the circle saying, crazy, we didn't air that one. But we mostly, Wound Beyond Age is a network of women, and I know a lot of them, and then other people suggest their friends that are interesting, and of course, cookbook authors, because that's what my background is. So Sandra, we're just lucky. That's all it comes down to. We are very lucky, and I'm so grateful to you for having me on your podcast, and to Cindy. Mm -hmm. Thank you, everyone, for listening right when you get work. Um, thank you, Miss Cindy, who does, who keeps the train on the track. And I am not exaggerating when I say that. <laughs> Thanks, Sandra. Thanks, Cindy. Bye-bye.